Hi there. I'm Corey Quinn, Chief Cloud Economist at the Duckbill Group. I also host two podcasts, the AWS Morning Brief and Screaming in the Cloud, as well as write the Last Week in AWS newsletter. And I'm taking over hosting duties for Software Engineering Daily for this entire week to take you on a tour of the cloud. Today we're starting with AWS. My guest today is currently the Chief Product Officer at Alma, but before this was my colleague here at the Duckbill Group. A few announcements before we get started. One, if you like Clubhouse, subscribe to the Club for Software Daily on Clubhouse. It's just Software Daily, and we'll be doing some interesting Clubhouse sessions within the next few weeks. Uh, And two, if you are looking for a job, we are hiring a variety of roles. We're looking for a social media manager, we're looking for a graphic designer, and we're looking for writers. If you are interested in contributing content to Software Engineering Daily, or even if you're a podcaster and you're curious about how to get involved, we are looking for people with interesting backgrounds who can contribute to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, Again, mostly we're looking for social media help and design help, but if you're a writer or a podcaster, we'd also love to hear from you. You can send me an email with your resume, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. That's jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Pete Cheslock, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. It is always fun to take some time out of my day just to chat with you, and who knows that we could have just hit record and just share it with the world. Exactly. And one of these days, we'll have to do this with one of our coffee meetups or something and see how that unfolds. But you were the answer to an interesting problem I was faced with. If I want to go and talk about an overview of AWS, where do you even start with something like that? It's massive. There are over 200 distinct services. It feels like at this point, it's one of those, if you know about it, you know about it. But if you're not in that ecosystem, give up because you can never get into it at all. So, who do you talk to? Do you grab some random AWS employee to talk about what they see from where they're sitting? Do you grab someone from one of their big customers? Instead, I thought I'd go a little bit more unique, and that was in the form of you. What were you doing before you joined the Duckbill Group? Yeah, so that is a good question. And I I was consider that to be like almost like the most amazing shade. <laughs> like, I'm going to find someone unique like you, Pete. I am like a star in the sky. So prior to Duckbill Group, I had actually just moved on from a startup I was at, Chaos Search, and was taking some time to kind of figure out what was next. And I got connected with, you know, via actually some Amazon employees. They were looking for someone who kind of had some experience in Amazon, but didn't work for Amazon or work for really anyone would be ideal because it turns out that around that time, this was the fall of 2019, the AWS and Microsoft have been fighting over a $10 billion contract that's known as JEDI, which stands for Joint Defense something or other that I completely forget the name of. But they were looking for someone who could basically help their lawyers understand cloud, which is comical if you really think about it. Like It's hard enough to teach engineers how to understand cloud. Now attorneys, you have to explain this in very precise language where there are terms of art that neither side understands. It sounds incredibly interesting, incredibly difficult to, I guess, communicate through that barrier, and almost certainly deeply NDA'd. 
Yeah, it's very deeply NDA'd. I absolutely have an NDA with Amazon, as you would expect. But actually, there's another level that it's super interesting to talk about is the next level up from there. Because having an NDA with AWS, with Amazon in general, that makes sense. Because I'm going to be looking at the procurement documentation, all of the research, all of the proposals that went to the DOD that the DOD would have reviewed to decide who to go with. But as part of this engagement with these law firms, I would also need to look at Microsoft's proposals and what they submitted to the DOD as part of this. So there's another level above a standard you know, non-disclosure agreement with a single company. And there's something called a protective order, which is through the federal courts, I believe. it's So this specific court case is through the court, federal court of claims where they actually, you know, it's a court designed specifically for these kind of contractual disagreements in the procurement process. And so I was actually put under, and still am, under a protective order, which basically says that I'm one of a pretty small number of people that has access to the documents that are under this protective order that are related to this procurement process. And so, of course, like, I'm obviously unable to disclose any of those documents for extremely obvious reasons. And I will not ask you to disclose any of them, but it gave you a very interesting perspective in that you you see it at a very large scale from also a juxtaposition with another hyperscale competitor in ways that most people generally don't. After that, you came to the Duckbill Group and frankly learned a lot about how AWS services fit together, which you've been doing before, the same way that I do, which is I start with the bill. Because if it's not on the bill, it isn't real. That's the only place in all of AWS that you can see all of the expensive resources you're running in one place. Otherwise, you are clicking through every different region, every different service. And again, there are over 200 services and something around 20 regions at the moment. It's an awful lot of clicking and there's no great, just tell me everything that I have running. You are absolutely right. The cost and usage report is the only single source of truth that exists. I mean, it's probably more accurate than the console even is for what I have and where it's at. It's all in one place, too. It's right there. It's just, I mean, you have to turn it on first, but you're right. So I think what was most fascinating about working on this engagement, it actually, it's still going. There are still, you know, legal documents being fired back and forth. My involvement in it is massively reduced. I spent a lot of time in January, February, and March of 2020 very heavily working with a couple of law firms that were both on the Amazon side of things, helping them understand the process, understand what is cloud, what is this service, and what does it mean, and how does it work, and I mean, all those things. It was super fascinating. And I, I got to tell you, some of these lawyers know more about cloud technology than cloud technologists I've worked with. I mean, very impressive to work with these folks. But then you would imagine that someone who has this level of knowledge, right? Again, knowledge that I literally can't share with anyone other than other people under this protective order. But you would imagine like going into the duckbill group and doing more work with Amazon and cost stuff like, oh, well, Pete, you must know so much already. And there's just too much. There's too much. Even with this kind of insane level of insight into the inner workings of these cloud vendors, there is still just so much information that exists out there that requires just dedicated ongoing research. 
it's one of those problems where where my newsletter came from was I'm trying to track absolutely everything that's going on in the world of AWS that has some sort of economic impact. It turns out there's no one blog feed that does that. There are over 40 distinct RSS feeds that AWS publishes for updates that come out. They come out with thousands of them a year now. And which ones of those matter? Which ones don't? It was basically like straining raw sewage with my teeth. So by the time I wrapped my head around all of that and got to a point of being able to contextualize this and understand it in a reasonable way, I was 80% of the way there of, well, why didn't I just throw some jokes in to keep it interesting? And then on top of that, go ahead and just send it out to some people. Maybe a few people who aren't blood relatives would sign up for this and find it useful. And four years later, I now have over 26,000 people who wind up getting that newsletter every Monday where I just make fun of Amazon because of deep-seated personality problems that I have. And only some of those are a direct result of working with AWS for the past decade, give or take. Yeah, I mean, before you kind of started that newsletter, you're right. Where would you go for information? It was more piecemeal out in the market. I mean, obviously the, the content exists. You're not necessarily kind of net new creating content. There's a lot of folks out there that do that already. It's distilling down the fire hose of data that's coming. And I would almost be curious to see, you know, almost, I'm sure this has been done like a time series graph of just blog posts and content creation coming out of AWS from, you know, around the time you started last week in AWS all the way through now. I would just imagine it has gone up by just magnitudes, orders of magnitude, right? Because of, to your point, the services coming out, then additional blog posts around that. And they do so much education in the posts more so than before that it just adds on top of this. And it's like, how, how, how does one just coming into cloud and just trying to understand some of the basics, like where does one go, right? There are too many places. And so I think, yeah, to your point, by creating this newsletter, and thank God there are the jokes and the snark in it, because otherwise it would be supremely boring. So you got to throw in a little bit of shade as you talk about, you know, the next iteration of AWS Systems Manager, Systems Manager Redux. Oh, yeah. They love putting repeated words and product names and the rest. The jokes are for me to keep it interesting because, my God, would this be boring otherwise? I still remember, though, the first time I fired up AWS and looked at their console and was just overwhelmed by the sheer number of services. There were less than 15. There are now over 200, and that problem has never gotten any better. And there are other problems with getting started with it. You start with a basic task. I want to spin up a virtual machine or an instance, as AWS calls it. They're very picky about their names for things. So, okay, I'll do that. Well, I have to configure the networking correctly, which requires a whole bunch of knowledge and learning. I need to make sure that their DNS service, Route 53, that I insist on misusing as a database, is configured to point to that thing. You have to worry about how to upload your SSH key through some other additional panel. You have to get the account set up and get your billing information entered. You have to wind up firing up IAM if you're going to do this even halfway responsibly, so you're not doing everything as the root user. And By the time you get up and running and log into that instance for the first time, you've already picked up about a dozen services. And you look at the rest of these things and figure, oh my God, it must all be like this, so it's impossible to learn all of it. No, 
wow, you can pick up an awful lot of these services in an afternoon, at least to a topical level enough to stand something up and kick the tires on it. You don't need to spend years of your life learning the ins and outs of every service because no one uses all of these services. They're like Pokemon. You've got to catch them all somehow. Some people seem to interpret it that way and say, oh yeah, we're running over 80 AWS services ourselves. Like it's some sort of badge of honor rather than the sign of something deeply and profoundly wrong with what they've built. Yeah, when I got started in with AWS, it was back in the 2009 timeframe, and I couldn't tell you how many services were ran at the time, but the ones we used was basically S3 and EC2, and I guess if you'd count EBS as a service, that was really it. And moving data back and forth, and you basically hit all the salient notes of where most of the revenue still comes from today. And then they have a bunch of nonsense that sometimes makes sense and sometimes doesn't. Yeah, right. I will say, like, I appreciate how they build, like, interconnectivity between services is a lot easier than I feel like it used to be, where, especially around the data infrastructure that exists nowadays, like, you don't need to actually be an expert or even really an intermediate kind of data engineer type person to use a slew of Amazon services with no code, with really just clicking around a console and get insights from your data. I mean, you can shove some data at S3 from the console, upload some data. You can go into Glue, DataBrew, Explorer and visually see your data and run transformations, again, with no code and get insights and query that data. I mean, you can do so much now without needing to know how to write code, it really opens up, I feel like, a lot of cloud services to people that traditionally wouldn't really use them, right? Even, I remember talking with the QuickSight team while I was at DuckBill, we were testing out QuickSight, and QuickSight is is almost frustratingly bad. <laughs> yeah, for those who are unaware, QuickSight is very similar to Tableau or Power BI. It's, it's more or less Excel on steroids. It's a data visualization tool. Now, you could be forgiven for not understanding that because... AWS is a company built of a bunch of small teams, but they do have some things in common. And one of them is that they are absolutely terrible at telling stories about anything that isn't a baseline building block of computer data center infrastructure. Anything higher up the stack, and they don't know who to talk to or how to articulate a message that resonates with those people. Yeah, you actually said the best line, which they should cut you a check or you should go trademark this, which is it's Excel on steroids. That's what it is. They're user for Excel is not me. I'm not their ideal user. I know how to use Tableau. I know how to use data visualization tools. In the technical operations world, we've been doing it for a long time, visualizing data in you know various forms. What QuickSight is built for is the Excel power user that is reaching kind of fundamental limits of Excel or where they're an Excel power user whose company has moved all of their backend data into Amazon and now they need something that is like Excel to point it. Because once you actually understand that that's how QuickSight really is, almost like a powerful visualization layer on like Excel functions, then everything changes and you're like, oh, like I've been using it wrong and that's why I hate it so much. Part of the problem too, I also want to be very clear here that every service we are talking about here is absolutely real. We're not making services up to have fun at your expense. Although, let me be very clear. When I do play those games, I make up AWS services that aren't real and don't get called out on that that fact 
by AWS employees. No one can hold this all in their head anymore. So when you look at the list of services and realize you don't know what most of them do, congratulations. There's a support group for that. It's called Everyone, and we meet at the bar. <laughs> Honestly, you know, when it comes to these new Amazon services, so I've been in the startup world for too long. I'm now back in the startup world again at an early stage startup with Alma. And at each of these startups I've been at, whenever you go through the process of fundraising, so at least two of my previous startups went through this process on fundraising, the question you will always inevitably get from some VC, less so now, but this was really prevalent, you know, five, six years ago, is, you know, why can't Amazon do this, right? You're building a thing, like, I want to build the next whatever. And you'll get the question from an investor saying, well, why can't Amazon do this? And the joke in almost every situation now is that they have already done it. No one uses it. No one knows it's there. You know, they create these things and they're so bad at telling the story about like who should use it and why and marketing it. Like they're great builders, but like I feel like that's where it usually ends. It also feels like AWS absolutely iterates super quickly. They release things in early stages of development where other companies would hold it back a while and put more polish on it. And that has advantages because they bring these things out to the world, people start using them, and they learn from their customers how people are going to use the service. It would not have occurred to them, for example, that I would use text records in their DNS service as a database because no one sensible would ever do such a thing. But I do. So, oh, they see things like that and they learn more about it and they keep iterating forward in that direction. Yeah. And that's great. I think that's awesome. The problem is, is when they launch a lot of these things, they feel unfinished and more than a little crappy. And when people learn something or they kick the tires on something new and it's bad, they don't go back and revisit that. They don't go and reevaluate those things because once you learn something, you know it. You don't need to go back and relearn it. And I think that's a mistake that an awful lot of folks make. We're all subject to it. But it, it's one of those problems where, yeah, a lot of these services that are out there today, EFS, their NFS as a service file system that shows up in their environments. You can attach it to instances. You can attach it to containers. You can attach it to Lambda functions for some godforsaken reason. And it's pretty good now. But when it launched, it was a piece of crap. It was the only way that you could get throughput was by how much data was stored on it. So it was a recommendation that if performance wasn't good enough, just put some big empty files onto the file system and just, just keep them there. And I'm looking at this going, what kind of clown shoes answer is this? And that got fixed. And a lot of things got fixed. And it went from laughable joke to an incredibly solid service that I recommend for some use cases, and I use it a couple times myself. But things evolve, and they don't tend to get worse with time. Yeah, it's honestly something I'm really impressed with Amazon still able to do today by continually shipping at the velocity they do, at the scale that they operate at. I mean, that is really fascinating to continue to see. To your point, yeah, I mean, they come out with these features as a way of getting feedback. The sad thing is, is that when a lot of these features come out, their audience is larger than any startup's audience likely will ever become. You know, So they come out day one with a huge amount of people using it and you know, running into problems and edge cases and issues. And so they call these like, you know, paper cut type improvements where you want to focus on improving paper cuts, because those are the things that grind on your, your current users of the product. So you want to really resolve those. Now, 
Most companies should ship products faster than they do. And actually, this is something I see a lot in the marketplace. I see, and it's honestly mostly from kind of software engineers who start companies. They feel like they need to have the whole product complete and ready to go before they can start their business. Like, you can't have a business unless you've got the whole product ready to go from end to end. And it's just not the case. I mean, you need to get an iteration out there. You need to collect feedback because you don't understand your user yet. Just because you're building a thing that you used or you think you would use, great. Like you've solved for yourself, but now you got to get it out there and get that feedback. And so I think that's where Amazon does do a really good job. But I don't know on the feedback side of things. I mean, in all my time as an Amazon user, the only time I really had an opportunity to share feedback of a service I was using was at my time at Duckbill. So like, I don't know what that says for like the fact that I was using Amazon for 10 years prior to Duckbill and had plenty of feedback I would have been happy to give, but very rarely had a, I guess, a vehicle to do that. So it's, you know, it's almost things are being lost in translation. I'm not sure how or why. I mostly found that just complaining about services on Twitter and being hilarious in the process is a good way to get attention. Not always good kinds of attention, but it gets attention nonetheless. And that on some level, I think, formed the basis of some of the relationships that we've built with AWS over the four years that we've been in business. I also want to point out that despite having a bunch of services, most of which have terrible names, and being shipped in very limited form before they evolve into something that a human being might consider using, one other thing makes AWS borderline unique in the tech space, and that is that they do not deprecate things ever. And I know that sounds like a really weird thing, but every service they have ever launched so far in AWS is still available. They don't talk about them very much. SimpleDB is not a service that most people should be using, and they don't advertise it at all, but it's still there if you want it. If you're going for a NoSQL database, their approach is go with DynamoDB in most cases because it improves on SimpleDB in almost every way. Great, but assume you have a workload that you build targeting SimpleDB you can still run it. They view APIs as promises, and that can mean some good things and also some terrible things. You still have to work in some cases with weird XML stuff in SOAP calls for some of the more legacy S3 endpoints, but they're still there. And all of the bugs that were horrible back then are still there as well. Yeah, it's... I really wonder sometimes, I wonder if Amazon needs to add product managers to the account teams, right? Like, how can they start hearing more of this? Like, to your point, yelling loudly on Twitter with some good jokes, you know, it's a way to do it, sure. It has some scaling problems. Yeah, I mean, I've worked at companies spending millions of dollars on Amazon. I usually would have an account manager. That poor account manager usually had, I don't know, hundreds of other accounts. Like, they were unbelievably overworked. It felt like every six months, like clockwork, they would introduce you to your new account manager and they would rotate through. It was either a, they get promoted to work with bigger accounts or they don't work out super well and go somewhere else. But the turnover in account managers from a customer perspective has been borderline ridiculous. Yeah, it's the other challenge too, yeah, around that, which is you're trying to create a relationship, a good line of communication with your account manager so that you can share feedback and by the time you do, they're flipped out to another one, you know, and, and it kind of gets lost there. And, you know, Amazon optimizes for everything being like hyper optimized, right? So I'm sure that they would love for you to send your feedback into like a support ticket or a forum or like a void where you shove your thoughts and feelings. But 
again, the user experience of that kind of feedback doesn't feel that great. You know, it's like you're trying to send feedback because it's like, listen, am I using it wrong? Do I not understand something? Is there a document? Like, if I am having some sort of problem, there's a breakdown somewhere on the Amazon side. Either there's a document that's not easy to find, there's a document that doesn't exist, there's a bug that I found. I mean, there's so many things that are probably need to be resolved that by shouting into the void <laughs> doesn't maybe, you know, that doesn't really solve my problem other than maybe feel good at the moment. Yeah. And it's a challenge because how do you scale communication? I mean, I feel increasingly like a disturbingly large portion of my job is introducing people who work at Amazon to one another. And I know it sounds weird, like we're here to talk about the technology, but I think it's either impossible or irresponsible to work extensively with any cloud provider at all where you don't understand their culture. Because companies ship their culture, whether they want to or not. Amazon is famous for its two pizza teams, where you have small teams doing independent things. And that makes perfect sense when you look at the console and realize that some service consoles are completely different than other services consoles. And it's like they aren't allowed to talk to each other. Like someone took the NDA to mean, oh, don't tell the CloudFormation team that this is coming out because otherwise they might be able to support it at launch. And it is very inconsistent. And I find myself constantly tripping over seams between different service teams. And so much of my time is introducing Amazon employees to one another. And I, I wish that weren't true, but it is. And everywhere you have these problems that are holistic throughout the entire system, the experience is terrible. So you look at things that have to touch everything, like their tagging system or the console itself or the billing system or the status page. Anything that has to touch all of the different groups is generally pretty haphazard because small independent teams, almost a microservices culture is in place there. And they don't have a culture of czars, of someone who can be some SVP of nonsense, who goes around and says, nope, I am saying we are fixing this this quarter, the end, full stop. Oh, you're going to whine and complain. Great. You can either fix it or work somewhere else. That's not their culture at all. And it shows. Now, if that were their culture, Amazon would almost certainly be a very different company. But the thing that makes you rock also inherently makes you suck. Your greatest strength is very often your greatest weakness. And this is a great microcosm of that. Yeah, I mean, their culture is what allows them to operate at this scale and to do it in this way. Now, again, they didn't get here overnight. I mean, the formation of, of what is now AWS, right, started in 2004, probably earlier. I mean, the Dynamo paper around there, you've got, you know, the work in South Africa around EC2, this has been going for a really long time, but they, I think the one adage they do, I mean, they're so data-driven, right? They're data-driven on all of their decisions. So I always feel like the problem with some of those decisions are, are they, you know, misinterpreting that data, right? Like if you're a product manager for some product and, and your next promotion is going to be based on a series of 10 metrics that have to do with like user adoption, you're probably not going to work on like paper cut type bugs if you can just shove a feature down the pipe and get more users to use it to get your promotion to then, you know, move on somewhere else. I don't know. I've never worked at a company the size of Amazon. I don't know how the internal politics work, but I would imagine it's probably a little bit true there. There's probably a little bit of truth in that. Gaming the metrics, right? Yeah, there's a mess. I don't know what it takes to build a company at that scale or at that size. I really don't. I think that it becomes something that is inherently, I guess, all about trade-offs and constraints in different ways. It, it, they're a 1.3 million person company now. 
at that point, you have no idea who's working there, what orgs there are. No one has even the org chart in their head, let alone anything more involved than that. And it's just a different scale. And I am sympathetic to it, but they're also creeping up on a $2 trillion market cap. So I am sympathetic, but only to a point. Cool. I pay them, in many cases, far more money than I would like, as does everyone who uses AWS. And I think that something that gets lost is, well, we can't fix this thing because it's hard. No, I I get that. That's fine. I'm not paying you a phone number every month just so you can only fix the easy problems. Get back to work. And I know that sounds a little harsh and unkind, but it is accurate. I mean, if you had a type of workload that had, I don't know, portability to it, maybe your scale wasn't enough yet... I mean, even if you had a large workload on Amazon and you feel like you're not being treated well by them, it would be probably supremely stupid to actually migrate to a different vendor. But there are other vendors that will happily take your data. Like they'll happily bring you over, you know, at any time, right? Not to say again that that's a good move and and it should be more than just like, you know, my account manager pissed me off last time we negotiated our EDP. So I'm going to move over to Oracle. You know, they're known for their kind and friendly renewal processes, right? Absolutely. It's a hard problem. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how to fix a lot of these organizational dynamic issues. I just know that when I see that they've launched a new service, it's time for me to go and kick the tires and see what happens. Then let's see what happens. (laughs) And it breaks and it's, oh, this is a bad user experience. And I talk about it and people show up, like, tell me more. They're they're genuinely interested. This is not just trying to get me to shut up and go away because honestly, I won't do that anyway. And they know that by now. Instead, it's a, we hadn't considered this use case. Like who would use a DNS service as a database? That's monstrous. But tell me more about what problems you're having when you try to do this monstrous thing. Maybe there's a better answer called literally anything else. Okay. And then we start diving into it and- In many cases, you have the problem, especially endemic to small teams, where they don't talk externally enough to customers in that when they're building a service, they are too close to the service itself. Like one of the last things that gets done is, and now we build the console interface for it because a lot of folks are going to talk to it just via API, as you should, quote unquote, should. Okay, but the people who built the console and talk about this service are way too close to it. They don't understand what it's like to see this thing as it is now without having the context of how it came to be, what the service does, and the rest. So a lot of that is left on set. And for a while, that was okay for some services, but not anymore. You know, you kind of mentioned this before about deprecation and and removing old services and how they just really don't do it. I mean, I'm sure we can count on probably one hand the number of things that they've probably stopped doing, right? And they're usually some sort of like, we are going to not support this SSL library anymore, or something that is more egregiously probably security-focused. We're no longer going to let you deploy new Lambda functions with an end-of-life version of the language that we set the runtime to, and we're enforcing this change two years after the language was end-of-life. So Yeah, there's a really small number of these times that do it. Again, from this, you know, again, from the company that you could still run like an M1 medium, like the first instance type that existed, those are still running out there. Like, think... Think about that for a second. I think that's actually more fascinating than SimpleDB because SimpleDB is just an API, right, that you could run. You could run, you know, I don't know, rebuild the backend. I'm sure they've rebuilt that backend a bunch of times. But M1, that M1 medium, I think it was the M1 medium I'm thinking of is right, was that first instance. Like, that, like, maps to, like, a box. I don't know if it's under, like, Werner's desk or something, like a Dell 2950 or whatever, you know. Like, that's, like, 
a approaching what is this now 10 plus 12 year old <laughs> quote unquote cloud resource like some poor person has to like manage that there's got to be technical debt associated with it so the question that i really have as amazon is so fast to come out with a lot of new stuff they do fix things over time sure maybe not at the speed we really want but We all know that technical debt can really have long-term implications to companies' growth. Like if you're continually dealing with technical debt, how has Amazon not hit that yet? I mean, are they just like throwing bodies at the problem? Like how is it possible they are able to both continually ship at this insanely high velocity new features while continually maintaining Things that have been deployed now for, I mean, we're approaching almost 20 years that some of these things have been deployed, right? Am I doing that math right? 15, I believe. But yeah, you're, you're close enough to it. Yeah, but it's like we're dealing with things that have been around for this long. How do they keep from the weight of technical debt crushing them? Like, I think that's probably the most fascinating part of their kind of no deprecation story is, again, how they stay ahead of that. Because that's a challenge, right? Like, everyone talks about technical debt being eventually, hopefully not a balloon payment that you have to pay, and hopefully you can pay it down over time. Maybe they're just doing that. And maybe they're just being very diligent on those payments. But that's the most fascinating part of the whole no-deprecation item for me. One story that has made it into the public sphere is back in 2017, they took an outage of the U.S. East 1 region's S3 installation for hours. It was the S3 apocalypse and half the internet was broken that day. And okay, great. There was a whole series of root cause analyses that are interesting fodder for other conversations. But what they did is a couple years later, they got on stage and talked about it, how they had completely rebuilt S3 from the ground up. It was now over 230 microservices that were powering this thing. And this entire transformation was done in a user-invisible way. At no point during that transformation, complete refactor and rewrite, did the service go unavailable? Did people see problems with data integrity and the rest? There was none of that. Yeah, the S3 story, there's actually one even earlier than that. When I was at a startup in 2009, 2010 timeframe called Sonian, no one's really ever heard of it. It's fine, but we were very early user at one point, we were definitely one of the largest S3 users. We were definitely one of the largest EBS users. We were just that early. But the S3 story is fascinating because when we were using S3 for basically backend for email archiving back in 2009 timeframe, we were storing a lot of data there. We were finding a lot of edge cases. I mean, I remember back then, you know, you really did have to, you know, create UUIDs for your prefixes if you wanted to get any sort of scale because of how they had architected it. That's long gone. You don't need that anymore. They've abstracted that away. But I remember talking to S3 engineers. We had a really good direct line of communication with them at that point. It was probably the closest I've ever been to kind of an Amazon team. And probably the last time I was ever that close was when we were that early. And they told a similar story, again, in that 2010-ish timeframe, that they had rebuilt major components of S3 four times a year, I think was it was something they had said, if I'm even remembering that right. It was something to that effect. Like multiple times a year, they had done like complete rebuilds of the infrastructure underlying the APIs. And I remember nowadays you kind of hear that it's not as interesting because obviously it's been done. But 10 years, 11 years ago, hearing that for the first time when 
maybe like my experience prior to that was running exchange servers on SANS and being blown away that like you could lose network interfaces and you could lose you know, power supplies and stuff, and the SAN is going to keep running. And here there's this whole massive infrastructure behind this API that they are completely, you know, rip and replacing, right, for lack of a better term. Just, like, fascinating to think about, even back then. What I think is overlooked, especially for those of us who started our careers in data center environments, is just how much of that work no longer exists. There are no 3 a.m. panic drives to the data center because something has broken. I haven't had to think about hard drives failing in years. In a cloud environment, a hard drive failure at worst looks like a very brief latency spike on what is something that you're working on, and that's it. And you have to be looking for it and know what it is. Yeah. That's all that it is. It's just purely under the hood API-driven magic, for lack of a better term. No, let's talk about that real quick. That is one of the most... I guess, I don't know if people even think about this, but EBS is by far one of the most amazing services that I really don't know if people give credit for. And maybe it's just because of our legacy thought process around what a hard drive is, right? So rewind 10 years ago or so, they had EBS and, you know, they would say, attach a hard drive to your virtual machine. Like those were kind of the terminology they were using. And sure, it made sense. You're like, sure, I've got, I'm coming from the VMware world, right? And I have a hard drive on the host that I'm going to connect to this guest or a virtual hard drive on the host that I'm going to connect to the guest, whatever. And that was this, a, kind of a similar thought process. And there was all these ways around, I think, you know, where you could like spin up a volume and you, you had to write to the volume to like get full access to the IOs, right? I think you kind of mentioned that earlier. But like fast forward to now, I've got some EBS attached to my server. There's all kinds of EBS now. There's GP2, GP3, IO volumes. I mean, there is an EBS volume for probably almost every workload. Dare I say every workload. But what's amazing is how you now have this ability to dynamically change the underlying of your server without downtime, without, you know, restarting services, restarting servers anymore. You can say, wow, like this volume is over-provisioned. I'm going to downsize it to another one. Or, oh God, I didn't give my EBS volume. I'm at 99% on my Cassandra cluster and I can't move this data off of it and the data won't stop coming in. You just add more, extend the volume. I mean, that is such a unbelievable thought that we can do that now. Back to your point of the data center world of like, how would we do it back then? Like we would have to I don't know, shove more hard drives in the sand and hope there was room or something. I mean, it's just like quickly move the data off, delete stuff, hoping that like, you know, you can do it. I mean, it's just, it's so fascinating that like, yeah, click button, make bigger. (laughs) And taking the object store story as well, and everyone likes to argue with me on this one, but I'm going to play this game. It has infinite storage. They can buy hard drives faster than you can put data on it. And I'm also willing to bet that they can buy more hard drives than I can afford to fill. That is just a general direction I'm taking things in. I'm probably right on that point. Look, I mean, they're dealing at a level of scale with S3 that has not occurred before. I mean, just it's so mind boggling. I'd love to spend, you know, a day with the S3 team in a room where no recording, where they can just talk about that scale because it must be unfathomable, right? But I would say when S3 first came out, which was, and I think there's a lot of like debate out there, right, Corey? What was the first service? Was it S3? Was it SQS? 
I always thought it was S3, but I feel like that goes back and forth. It depends on who you're talking to. The first service in beta was SQS, simple queuing service. The first service in general availability was S3. And if you get the leaders of both of those teams in a room, there will be an argument and you get to watch the tennis match go back and forth and just sit there and enjoy the moment if that ever happens to you. Oh, I got to remember that one. That's a good one for the future if I ever if I ever run into that situation. I remember when S3 came out for the first time, you know, hearing about it, and I didn't get it. Like, it just didn't make sense to me. I guess my brain couldn't compute that that term. It's not a file. It's not a block. What the hell is an object store, and why would I want one of those? I had a SAN. I had file stores, right? I had a file server for my files. It was a file share. I had LUNs on my SAN that I would connect to exchange servers, right? So I had, like, block store. I understood that concept, you know, files. But object, I just... I could not wrap my brain around it for the longest time. It was, again, like to your point, I think you said earlier, they were really bad at telling stories. That I think was their like first like scenario of them being bad at telling stories because like the people who really got it, like this founder friend of mine who started Sony and he saw S3 as like, oh, wow, like this is a game changer thing. And here's all the reasons why. And I know a lot of other people out there did as well. And obviously, a lot of those people went on to build some pretty awesome things. But yeah, it's so funny looking back. And I still remember that to this day, hearing about it and going like, but what is an object? Like, what does that mean? You know, it's just, yeah, it's fascinating to see how far we've come. It really is. And I can forgive you and other small companies looking at this saying, I don't get it. What's the point? That's fine. But the thing that surprises me and the reason that we're talking about AWS as the 800-pound gorilla in the space is because for almost five full years after they launched, there was no other competition. People made fun of it, but Microsoft was basically asleep at the wheel. Google was too busy building and then turning off Google Reader, whatever it is they're up to. And that's all that we really saw. So by the time that people realized, hey, there's money in them, our clouds, Amazon had gotten so far down the path of being the default slash only choice that everyone else was having to relearn the lessons they'd spent five years learning operationally by getting it wrong and learning from those mistakes. Everyone else was coming from behind and had an awful challenge to beat. And it turns out the cloud services are super sticky. Yeah, absolutely. Once you're in, like moving off is not something that you're really likely to do. Moving data, it's just too expensive. Even if you could move workloads, sure. There was the dream of Kubernetes, multi-cloud, single API, workloads across multiple clouds. No one's really doing that yet. And if you are, like, please do a conference talk on it. I think everyone would want to see it. The fact that people don't even do conference talks about that solution kind of proves to me no one's even really doing it because that's just a hard problem. But even if you, you could easily do that, easily run a workload in any cloud anywhere, you still have a data problem, right? You have a data and a network problem. And that's why places like AWS, they make the data so easy. The data in S3 as that central world around all these other services. Because the more you put into S3, the less likely you're going to leave AWS. I almost believe that that's one of their signals of knowing, you know, people are locked in there. It's like the more data you have, like if you're going to, are you going to move petabytes are you going to move exabytes out of S3? Like, unlikely, right? You're just going to leave your workloads there. 
Some people do, and they can, but it's atypical. Usually it's one of those, that is where data goes because we need it, but most of it's never accessed again. Think of how many pictures people take and store in various services that are using S3 as their storage for that, and then never actually access those things again. Like, how many pictures of receipts have you taken where you take the picture, you, you access it once, and then it sits there forever and rots because you don't need to know what your dinner receipt was back in 2014, but they can't get rid of it because you kind of actually might need to present that at some point in case of an audit or something. So how do you solve for those problems? Well, you wind up finding ways to do this at scale massively. And so much of that is almost certainly dead stock slash data that will never be touched again. But God help them if one day it goes unavailable. Yeah, I mean, that was the dream of the startup I was at with Sony and email archiving. Like, you're never going to probably need that email again until you need it. And when you need it, like, it's probably because you have lawyers asking you for it, right? So having a place that you can put an object like an email or a bundle of emails and not have to think about it for a really long time is so compelling. Like who wouldn't want something like that? Just dump your data here and maybe I'll do something with it later. And maybe some product manager comes along and is like, Oh God, we could, we could do some analytics on all this data we have. And you know, because it's all there right now, you can do stuff with it. I'm really looking forward to seeing what the future of cloud holds. The challenge is though, is that they're over $50 billion a year now in run rate. And that is an awful lot of revenue pouring in there. But they got there by reaching out specifically to developers and infrastructure people to wind up driving cloud adoption. The next $50 billion is not going to come from those folks. It's going to come from a lot of the blue chip enterprise style companies that are migrating in various directions. And that's a challenge that historically AWS has done a relatively poor job of, learning to speak to those businesses in ways that resonate, talking to the IT ops person who is not going to learn cloud formation, they're going to do things in the console, for example, is a bit of a stretch for them in many cultural respects. You can't do bottom-up adoption the same way anymore because it turns out that neither developers nor operations folks in IT are empowered to sign a $50 million cloud deal, you know, the second time, because the first time they did it, they were fired and prosecuted. Yeah, I mean, Amazon, they're not known for that. They're not known for being able to speak to what we'll call like the old guard enterprise. I mean, there's a lot of data centers still out there. There's a lot of workloads that are still in those data centers. And, you know, you have companies like Oracle and Microsoft that are honestly just way better at telling that story to those people. Everyone thinks I'm kidding when I say this about Microsoft, but the honest truth is, is that they have 40 years of experience apologizing for software failures. And that is exactly what you need to do in the cloud because things break all the time and at scale. That is what happens and you never get away from that. So you'd best be able to articulate that in a language and a context that your angry customers understand and appreciate. And Microsoft is the undisputed expert in that space. Yeah, I mean, Microsoft has the advantage in the enterprise. They've been in the enterprise for, you know, 30 plus years, right? It's so easy for them. They're already there with Exchange Server and all the other components that tie into it with Active Directory. They know how to talk to those IT folks and they're already involved in those engagements, whereas Amazon is not. Amazon is not selling an email service to these companies. They're not selling domain controller services and Exchange services and file services and SharePoint. Microsoft's already there. They already have their foot in the door. So I feel like Amazon has a big hill to climb in order to even meet them at their level, right? They have to go way above to 
get to those you know old guard IT ops folks that are dealing with <laughs> exchange servers and SharePoint servers and file shares and things like that. And sure, Amazon has a whole slew of things that you can use that can kind of replicate that service. But like, if I'm you know an Exchange admin, like I kind of want hosted Exchange. I'm going to go to Microsoft to get my hosted Exchange. Like I wouldn't even think of Amazon for that service, even though they could probably provide a pretty similar offering. And one of the biggest problems now is there are 15 different services that provide access to that exact model, which is the best. And you wind up with analysis paralysis. Honestly, the one that you pick doesn't usually matter all that much. Pick one and move forward with it. Worst case, you can always back out and try again. Yeah, I mean, I think if anything, like most enterprises, they're just going to use them all, right? You talk to an enterprise like, oh, what do you use for monitoring? Everything, right? They just, that's what they do. So it's far more likely that these at-large enterprises will truly be multi-cloud. Maybe not like single workload across multiple clouds, but they will probably consume the best of each service from each vendor. It's just the nature of enterprise. Like they will just eventually use everything. You know, even kind of come back to what we started on with the Jedi contract. Jedi was to consolidate the offering because the DoD currently uses everything. They, of course, the DoD already uses Amazon stuff. Of course, they already use Microsoft stuff. Like these companies have been around forever. This whole project was to consolidate, and they can't even get that through. So, you know, what hope does the mere mortal enterprise have? Yeah, we don't know. It's one of those areas where it's there's always something you should have known but weren't aware of that solves a problem for you. And even now, I learn about intricate capability stories of common services all the time where, wow, I really could have benefited from knowing that yesterday. You always find out about these things right after you really could have used them. Ever notice that? Oh, yeah, that's the worst. Go off and build a thing because, you know, it doesn't exist currently. And then you get done and someone's like, hey, isn't that just like the such and such service? And you're like, son of a. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's no easy way around it. Hmm. Pete, thanks for taking the time to, I guess, reminisce about the joy of AWS and its associated nonsense. I'll be here all week, but if people want to hear more about you or angrily argue with you about what we've just talked about, where can they find you? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at Pete Cheslock, and you can check out what I'm building over at Alma at alma.io, A-L-L-M-A. As one of my friends said, all my friends love Alma. Fantastic. This ends today's tour of the cloud, but I'll be here all week. If you enjoyed this podcast, follow me at QuinnyPig, that's Q-U-I-N-N-Y pig, on Twitter. And head over to lastweekinaws.com and subscribe to hear more from me on my podcasts, AWS Morning Brief and Screaming in the Cloud, as well as my newsletter, Last Week in AWS. <laughs>